0: Thank you, Lindsay. Good morning again, everybody. So happy new year. Happy 2024. I can't believe I'm saying that. That feels like some science fiction junk. It just 2024 sounds so weird to me. Um, So my 2024 began in um, an unexpectedly profound place, Brugger's Bagels. Uh, I was up ish in the morning while everyone else was still asleep, which is pretty much our reality every weekend, I'm usually up either reading or watching Premier League soccer. So since everyone else was up and there actually was no Premier League soccer that morning, I decided to run out and get bagels for everybody. Now, in the Brugger's, closest to my house at least, and really I've been in a lot of different Brugger's, the process is pretty much the same everywhere. So when you walk in, typically to the left, and you know, directions don't really matter, but you know, stick with the process. So it, to the left is the food side. To the left is the place where you go and you actually order what you want. Two or three employees, expert bagel makers, if you will, are usually there. With all of the bagels, you know, in the the racks behind them, looking plump and delicious and inviting, and all of that, and then in front of them, all of the cream cheeses and the toppings that they can make sandwiches and all of that stuff with. And so when you go in, a little line forms as you go to the left, and we all stand patiently, awkwardly going. Do we still stand six feet apart, or are we good to get a little anyways? Um, and so you stand there awkwardly for a few minutes, and then when it's yours, your turn, you take your little step forward up to the counter, signaling, I know what this means, it's my turn. And the bagel maker looks at you and says, Usually, what can I get for you? Now, sometimes you get, uh, you know, a Gen Z employee that is really annoyed that they're at work and looks at you like they don't understand why you couldn't just make your own bagel at home. Why are you here? Um, but Most of the time, the person, regardless of generation, is polite and pleasant. Occasionally even, you get someone with some personality, and there's a joy to it. You get a, good morning, sweetie, what can I get for you? Or a, what can I get you, boss? You know, invitation to a little light conversation while the bagel is being made. And then after this delightful exchange, you get your food and you proceed from the left side to the right side, the business side of the room where they confirm what you ordered, they ring you up and you pay with your credit card or whatever at the credit card machine. And this is how I have ordered at Brugger's for years, nay, decades but on this new year's day 2024 i walked in and i proceeded to the left prepared to order my food with the expert bagel makers and i was promptly told actually you will place your order over there pointing to the right side the business side the cashier station with its evil soulless credit card machine now i just i rolled with it y'all i i you know, I can do social situations. So I just rolled with it. I played it cool. I moved to the right. I ordered my big bagel bundle or whatever it's named now, 13 bagels and two cream cheeses looking not at the delicious racks of bagels this time, but now a printed list on a piece of fancy cardboard and then I paid, and I stepped back, and I waited for my order. It was simple and efficient. A new process, I presume, designed to enable the expert bagel makers to make their bagels with greater productivity. But as I sat there for a few moments, attending to my feelings, I became aware that though this is trivial and silly, I recognize the change made me kind of sad. I mean... Just in general, if I'm being honest, I don't really like change, right? I, for one, think optimization is a little overrated. In my old age, I prefer comfort and predictability. Every time one of my app up, apps update on my phone, I'm like, why, was someone really struggling to operate this? <laughs> Nevertheless. But bigger than this, I realized I was a little sad because I didn't get that little moment of conversation. And presumably, I never would again at brugger's Bagels. I hadn't realized it until that very moment when it was gone, but I had apparently liked that moment. There was a, a warmth to it. It made the experience more human in some way, a little more fun, a little more alive I like bagels, and I was ostensibly there just to simply get bagels, to exchange money for a product. But apparently, bagels without human interaction feels strange, cold, sterile. It just didn't feel right for some reason. Perhaps bagels taste better when there's a little exchange of humanity along with it. So when I got home... Holly was then awake. And so we wished each other, you know, Happy New Year. Hey, Happy New Year, Happy New Year. And then she asked me lightheartedly, how does it look out there in the world in 2024? And I responded, it was pretty quiet out there because I saw like one car on the road because who's up at like 7.30 on New Year's Day other than me. Um, And I almost left it at that. But then, as I occasionally do, I decided to turn it into a more philosophical moment. isn't Holly a lucky lady? And so I decided to share this little story in reflection. And afterwards I said, you know, if you're looking for an actual outlook of what the world looks like in 2024, which I'm sure she was thinking I wasn't. <laughs> nevertheless, I fear that that might actually be it. It feels like we're trying to program the humanity out of everything. We're getting better and better at efficiency and optimization, but systems designed for efficiency are not always designed for humanity. This actually reminded me of something Andy Crouch said in one of our book club books that we read a few months ago, The Life We're Looking For. After talking about the God Mammon, the only God that Jesus actually names by name in the New Testament, um, and the depersonalizing grip of technology on our society, he said, rather than actually creating machines that understand the infinitely creative and complex world of human culture, we will find that it is far easier Easier to create attenuated cultural environments that treat persons like machines which is what mammon has always wanted all along in other words like the more the machines define our world the more we will become machine-like we will create environments that treat us like machines rather than the other way around and i was feeling that at brugger's bagels now, let me share with you a very, very different story. So after this little diatribe, I think Holly was trying to encourage me and make me feel a little bit better. So she told me about a story that she had seen on Instagram, and it is about to play up here on the screen. I'll be home for Christmas, you can plan on me. have snow and mistletoe and presents on the tree. Christmas Eve that like only the people in the first two rows have any idea what happened. And I honestly shouldn't tell you what happened (laughs) just to like teach everybody to move up a little bit. Like, what are we in a high school? You're sitting in the back row. But anyways, um, I won't do that. I'm nicer than that occasionally. Um, So I I will tell you what happened essentially. The essence of this was a young woman named Allison Hall was stuck at the Winnipeg airport. She was supposed to fly home to Minneapolis for Christmas, but her flight was initially delayed, and they waited five hours for it to take off, and eventually it was just ultimately canceled. And so after trying to figure out a bunch of different solutions and there were no other flights that were going out, she asked the airline agent about the rental car place, potentially um, hoping to rent a car and drive home. And several other passengers that were standing nearby overheard the conversation that she was having. And they said, hey, wait, can I come with you? I'll split the rental with you. One was like, I have snacks. which was like, you're in. And the next thing you know, four strangers of different backgrounds different ages different generations etc were all in a car driving nine hours through the snow eating snacks sharing stories and singing christmas carols together and as she said knowing that they were all in this together a grandma got home to see her grandchild in the nutcracker allison got home to be with her husband and her family on Christmas. It is a beautifully fun and delightfully charming story. Had the flight taken off as scheduled, they probably would have all put on their headphones or read a magazine by themselves, staying in their little bubble of individual convenience, but instead, amidst adversity and inconvenience, they found the wonderful surprise of community and solidarity this actually reminded me of another sort of similar holiday related story that holly shared with me a few years ago from instagram as well so i you know think that instagram is the devil but at least there's a couple good things happening on instagram so In 2016, a grandmother named Wanda Dench in Mesa, Arizona, texted her grandson to see if he could make it to Thanksgiving dinner. But she texted the wrong number belonging to a young man named Jamal Hinton. And he said... Who is this? Or probably like, who dis? Which by the way, is a great thing to text back to your teenage daughter when she's waiting for you in the carpool line, wondering when you're gonna get there. Who dis? She loves it, I tell you. You should ask her, she loves it. Anyways, who dis? She said, your grandmother. He said, send me a picture. She did, and he responded, you're not my grandmother can I get a plate though? And she said, of course you can. Grandmas feed everybody. And he actually went over there for Thanksgiving and he's now been doing it for seven years straight. They've become friends and a support system for one another in his phone. As you might have seen, she's listed as grandma Wanda, (laughs) which is awesome. Now I know these are just individual stories. Right? In the big scheme of things, an overly philosophical trip to Brugger's, and a charming story that bears remarkable similarity to a scene in Home Alone, which one of the Instagram uh, commenters actually pointed out, which is hilarious. Um, they don't have much bearing on the larger happenings in the world, but I couldn't help feel like these stories were a bit of a metaphor or a parable of sorts of where we are as we enter 2024. As we start this new year, it kind of feels like this is the choice before us. To use some language that I've started using more and more, it's, it's the choice between excarnation and incarnation. We live in a world that is increasingly excarnational, increasingly disembodied. world of efficiency and optimization, of social media and food apps and Amazon. I mean, y'all, delivery people don't even knock on the door anymore. You remember you used to have to sign for packages? You all forgot that, didn't you? Like till this week, I was like, wait a minute, I had to sign for packages? Now they just frisbee that junk from halfway up the yard, like onto your porch but there's something in us. We we like this convenience on some level, right? I mean, we love it, and and yet, there's something in us screaming out for incarnation, for human contact and relationships. I mean, incarnation is messy and inconvenient. It's, It's inefficient and unpredictable, but that's exactly what makes it so beautiful. Incarnation is the only place we experience surprise. And surprise is what makes life worth living. Incarnation is the only place that life, with a capital L, lives. Those of you who know a little bit about church history will know this. One of the first great heresies in the early church was a heresy called docetism, from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem or to appear. In essence, the Greek dualistic mind couldn't deal with the fact that Jesus had come really incarnate, like really as a person, born, covered in amniotic fluid, dirty, tired, hungry, used the bathroom. What kind of God uses the bathroom? And of course, died like a peasant on a cross. What kind of God does things? like that. And so they said Jesus wasn't really human. He couldn't really be fully human in addition to fully divine. He just seemed human. He just appeared that way. He didn't really die on a cross. He just appeared to do those things. So the first major destructive thing that people in the church tried to do to make things more convenient for themselves was to extract Jesus and by implication us from the incarnation in all of its messiness but also all of its beauty keep that in the back of your mind as we turn to our scriptures and stories for the day today we're actually covering two days in one Now, as you know, in recent years, we've begun following the lectionary. And as such, we're trying to take more wisdom from the Christian calendar, the historic Christian structuring of the year, because that's intentional too. And on the Christian calendar, yesterday, January 6th, was Epiphany the day of epiphany. Epiphany is the conclusion of the Christmas season, the 12 days of Christmas. Yes, it's a real thing. It's not just a really stupid song. Epiphany is also sometimes called Three Kings Day or Three Wise Men Day because the day of epiphany always celebrates the story of the magi coming from the east to visit the child Jesus and bring him gifts, which obviously we read earlier. And the day of Epiphany begins the season of Epiphany, or also called Epiphany Tide, which is kind of a mouthful, which runs all the way up until the beginning of Lent. Now, the first Sunday of the season of Epiphany, after the day of Epiphany, is always the day of the baptism of the Lord, which is, of course, today. Today is the first Sunday. So, yesterday was Epiphany. Today is the day of the baptism of the Lord. So, We read all the epiphany texts earlier, and what I would like to do is at least read a couple of the baptism of the Lord texts as well, and then we'll just spend a couple minutes talking about them both and some characteristics that they share. So Genesis 1, 1 through 5. "'In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. "'Now the earth was formless and empty. "'Darkness was over the surface of the deep, "'and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters.'" And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the day, God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now Mark chapter one, four through 11. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So we've read through both the story of the Magi and the story of jesus's baptism and i want to take a minute just to reflect on the wisdom of the church in bringing us to these particular stories at the beginning of every year we of course have advent in december a time of waiting and longing followed then by the surprise of christmas the surprise and wonder of christmas the birth of a new possibility just when you were at your most weary. And then as we begin to process the meaning of this new possibility, we are brought to gaze at these two stories every year. Each of these stories is remarkable in its own right and we could unpack them for hours upon hours. But the thing I think they both share is a paradox, the paradox of old and new, of past and future, of looking back into an old story while looking forward into the possibility of a new story, or an old story transformed and made new. Each of these stories is littered with images and callbacks to stories from the Hebrew Scriptures. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project calls these hyperlinks, which I love. It's a fantastic updated idea that helps us understand what scriptures are like, particularly the New Testament scriptures and the way they're constantly pointing back to the old. In church tradition, the Magi coming to visit Jesus represents the revelation of the Messiah and God's plan to the Gentiles to the entire world, which is a promise made over and over in the Hebrew scriptures. Abraham is told he will be a blessing to all the nations. The prophets are constantly depicting the nations of the world streaming to a king in Israel for wisdom and guidance. Additionally, part of the Magi story is the oppressive reign of King Herod and his killing of all the baby boys in Bethlehem to try to get rid of this child king, Jesus. And all of this is a hyperlink to Pharaoh and the Exodus story as well. The story of Jesus' baptism is even more interesting. It is like one endless hyperlink. John is baptizing in the Jordan River, which is where God stopped the waters of the river so that people could enter the promised land, which itself was a hyperlink back to the story of the Exodus when God parted the Sea of Reeds to save his people from Pharaoh. When Jesus comes out of the water, the Spirit of God is said to hover over him like a dove and speaks over him, just like God's Spirit hovered over the waters in the beginning in Genesis 1 and spoke order and life into it, which is why we had both of those scriptures as part of the lectionary. So both of these stories are being extremely intentional about pointing our eyes and our minds back to the stories of the past but they're not just doing it because they want us to reflect on the stories of the past they're doing so in order to demonstrate that God is actually doing something completely new The point of reminding people of the promises that God's kingdom was always intended for all people in all nations is to say that that abstract idea is now becoming real. It's about to happen. It's about to really go out to everyone. A thing which has never happened is now happening. Likewise, the point of pointing back to the Exodus and the first creation story is to say that a new Exodus and a new creation is beginning in this Jesus. Jesus. So the point seems to be that faith in this Jesus always calls us to invest both backward and forward, to reflect on the story of the past, but also believe in God's ability to surprise us, to always open new doors and create a new wondrous future. Let me see if I can communicate this in a slightly more personal way. When I was a child and a teenager, I went through some difficult things with my family. Custody battles, manipulations, lies, selfishness, loneliness on my part, and anger and bitterness on my part as well. And when I was younger, like an older teenager or a young adult, I thought that when, if I could just move out of that environment, that I would just be able to leave it all behind. I wanted a clean break, a quick fix, a new start, a new story, before and after. Now, as an adult, yes, in middle age, I realized that that was never possible. All of that has stayed in me and with me, and it always will. There is no escaping that story, no quick fix, no simple before and after where the past gets to be left behind. I was listening to a really interesting interview recently on teen mental health and parenting, and the woman being interviewed said that parenting teenagers can often be really, really hard for the parents, not just because teenagers are hard, but dear baby Jesus, are they? (laughs) But because... Also, it brings up all sorts of stuff for the parents because your teenage years are kind of like the first years of your life that you really begin to remember everything, right? Like everything is still there, can be called to mind really vividly and viscerally. And I have experienced this to be so true. And I've even talked to my kids about it. That's really the the best thing I think I can do. To a degree, normal teenage development is a time where you're trying to establish independence from your parents, right? So you don't want their help. You don't want their wisdom. I've started calling it the petty rebellion phase of life, right? Like my kids are pretty good kids, so they... they they haven't, and I don't think they will rebel in like big, epic, destructive ways, right? But they live in just this constant, low grade state of rebellion over petty, stupid things, right? Like, if you want me to shower faster, I'm gonna take two hours in the shower, like just to prove to you that you're not in charge. Well, when I was their age, when I was a teenager, my life had been blown up and turned upside down and I felt completely alone. I had no safety, no security. I I didn't have comfort with my parents. I desperately wanted someone to help me, someone to talk to, someone to give me wisdom or help me with my jump shot, and no one was there. So when I try to help my kids, and they reject it, It is on some level a completely developmentally appropriate thing for them to be doing, yet it tears a hole in my soul, and I don't know what to do with it. I never got a stage of petty rebellion because I wasn't secure enough to do that, so I have no idea how to handle it. It just feels so much bigger to me than I think it does for people that grew up in more normal environments. My story always lives in me. To pretend otherwise is to ironically give that story more power over me and my future. But that doesn't mean that that story defines my future. I am also pregnant with new life and new possibilities. I also live daily with the wondrous potential for that story to be transformed into something that is continuous with the old thing, but also completely new and wholly unexpected. If I continue to remain humble and confess the moments where I allow that legacy, that story to continue to control me, and I trust in God in his new creation powers, he can transform that story into something new and better. And he is. By the grace of God, I go. And this is what our faith is all about. Right? I mean, this is what resurrection is all about. Right? There's continuity with the old body, but it is completely transformed. We are who we were, but we are also something completely new. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he had the scars from the nails and the cross still in his hands, but they didn't bind or hurt anymore. In some way, they became beautiful and useful. This is where the lectionary brings us at the beginning of every year. And what a wonderful place to start at the intersection of story and surprise. With a reminder that our faith always calls us into the past to seek nourishment and wisdom from the stories of the past, both our own and the larger story of God's people. And it also calls us into a new future where old wounds, fears, and failures can be resurrected, into something beautiful and transformed and to come full circle to our stories from earlier i think this paradox can only be understood and lived out incarnationally our stories today our bible stories are deeply incarnational right real people real interactions, real historical circumstances, real kings, real different routes home to make sure the tragedies don't happen, real rivers, real waters, real lives, real hopes and dreams. And the stories that we told earlier are incarnational stories as well, a wrong text, a canceled flight, and community and relationships suddenly born. We are living in an increasingly excarnational world, but story is inherently incarnational, and surprise is only possible in an incarnational context. So in 2024, I I wanna encourage you to make this a year of story and surprise and incarnation because that's the only place where those two things live on a practical level i just want to make two suggestions one do something that looks back that invests in your own story but also in the story of scripture remind yourselves that you are part of a millennia-long family of faith Take strength from the great cloud of witnesses that even made it possible for us to be in this room 2,000 years after the events that we're talking about. And second, do something new. Something that opens you up to surprise. Don't stay safe. Don't stay efficient and predictable. Do something that opens the possibility of surprise in your life and most importantly, do them both incarnationally, with people, in community. Resurrection does not take place on apps or screens, but it does take place on unexpected car rides from Winnipeg to Minnesota, or at Thanksgiving tables in Mesa, Arizona. So this year, get in the car or follow the unexpected text, amen? let's pray Heavenly Father thank you for story and surprise thank you for resurrection a thing that continues on an old story an old life an old body and yet transforms it into something wildly new and unexpected remind us that that is the reality that we wake up to every day every new year but every day in that new year. And help us to trust you that you've got new things if we just lean in both to you and to one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.